As far as I'm concerned, as long as that same respect and recognition is not shown toward every one of our people in this country, it doesn't exist for me. And during the few moments that we have left, we want to have just an off-the-cuff chat between you and me, us. We want to talk right down to earth in a language that everybody here can easily understand. I'm not ever going to do a long intro today because today we have a takeover by my teacher. Go for it. <laughs> Hi, everyone. <laughs> it's Deej taking over the Malcolm Effect podcast. I've been waiting for this moment for a while. I've been begging Mamadou to let this happen for a while. and He's finally conceded. So I'm here with Two Black, who is someone who inspires me so much. Truly one of the most intellectually strong writers I think I've ever engaged with and thinking through your article and the articles that I've read of yours your ability to to write so prophetically to write so intensely and so poetically really really inspires me and today we're going to be thinking through some of what you've spoken about in the article you wrote about the laundering of black rage so I suppose Firstly, I want to kind of give you a chance to sort of introduce yourself and introduce what inspired you to write this amazing piece that I think is so, so good at capturing the essence of what's going on in the current moment. I didn't say this in the first interview, but I think I'll give a little more backstory, just the essay itself. I live in Indianapolis, Indiana, so I'm probably going to get in trouble for putting some, I'm not going to put any names out, but I'm just going to name some events that kind of led to these observations. So I cut my teeth as an artist. That's where I started as an artist. That's how I got the name Too Black and all of that. So I'm pretty connected to the arts world. And this will all make sense once I'm done. And, you know, for years we had been advocating in various ways to get more money into the arts in the city because, you know, people felt that the money, the city didn't invest in the arts. And this is prior to any so-called uprising or protests or anything of that nature. And then... We never were able to get this done. Like the city was never really that interested other than a project here and there of throwing any money into the arts. And even when they did, it tends to highlight in individual artists, not the arts as a, like a communal effort. So in 2020, Dre John Reed, a young black man was killed by the police. He was running from the cops. He was killed by a black police officer while running away, but the police claimed that he had a gun. He turned around and tried to shoot them because that makes total sense. So that that happened in May 6th. That was before the George Floyd murder that kind of brought the, the masses of the country and even the world, or the, I should say the colony and even the world out on the streets. So we, we were, there were people in Indianapolis were protesting and out on the streets then, and then George Floyd, and obviously with Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery, like, and COVID and all of this stuff culminated. And then it brought about this surge that I'm calling black rage onto the streets. And then all of a sudden, the moment that that happens, you just start seeing all this money pour into the arts. <laughs> just, it's just a very interesting correlation. I mean, there's, there's organizations that were created to become the, as I call them, fronts to, to take that money on. A lot of that money was coming directly from the mayor's office. I mean, this wasn't even hid. This is this was on flyers that they did some of the arts events. They highlighted all the black artists. The, there was money coming from the Chamber of Commerce that wanted to focus on murals. And then the struggle became about creating a Black Lives mural 
more so than any of the people who've gotten killed or any of the policies. And then there was actually 18 artists who's, who have all improved their livelihoods since, and they're called the 18, like they're political prisoners or something. <laughs> and they've been able to, uh, there are artists as in actual painters or something of that nature, draw, you know, painters, drawers, et cetera. And again, this isn't a knock on anyone individually. And they were able to come up. They actually have a display right now at one of the art museums. There was no political education attached to this. The Black Lives Matter organization that was leading a lot of this, they got caught up in trying to balance various things. I don't really blame much on them. Next thing you know, all this money was showing up in the arts. And then all of these artists are getting put on. Is in the When the NCAA had a, had a tournament, they got put on for that. The, the Final Four tournament and, and, and so on and so forth. I mean, I could get into tend to more, but I don't want to drag this out. And I said, I just say, like, I, as I was looking at this, I was like, I know these people. So I couldn't grade this as simply a moral failure because I know some of these people are actually aren't what I would consider bad people. I was like, there has to be something deeper where we always end up here where all of a sudden they can just reroute the energy that was on the streets that was, that was asking for defund the police and thus and, and everything else. And they rerouted it somewhere else. And now we're just celebrating black art. And we get to say that racism exists in our poems and our artwork or whatever. But all we really get to do is name it at best. And that's at best. Oftentimes, they don't even do a good job of naming it because a lot of artists don't have politics. So that's kind of what inspired me to even come to write what I wrote. If that gives some, some bit of a backdrop. No, that's so interesting. And it's so kind of interesting because there is a current sort of moment in the context of the UK where we've had similar critiques of our Black Lives Matter kind of network. And currently they're they're hosting a Black Lives Matter festival of arts, right? <laughs> <laughs> and I remember when I saw it, you know, I had I, I saw a lot of reactionary critiques online. People were like, oh, you can celebrate Black art, but you shouldn't use the Black Lives Matter slogan because it means a specific thing. But my thing was like, in the heights of the types of political organization, the kind of upsurgence of this political rage and this black rage in the context of George Floyd, I was around a lot of the people who were kind of starting these protests, these very young people, right? And they had very little to no political training, right? They had very little political discipline. They wanted to work with cops and stuff like that. And I was like, we mm -hmm. don't do that. So mm -hmm. when I heard that there was a Black Lives Matter festival and I'm like, well, we've had no political education, where we've had no rigorous training for people on the streets. Why are we going to the arts? And I suppose that leads to this question. And it's something that you alluded to and spoke quite clearly about in, in the context of your article too. Why is it? that capital is so invested in black cultural artifacts. What is it about that ability to kind of harness that black kind of creative spirit that capital is so invested in? Now, that's a great question. I think, again, you were speaking about some of those contradictions. And I think what I was trying to get at was that black rage isn't an inherently like revolutionary, trained, politically sophisticated position. It's just a response to, to being conquered that doesn't always take the direction against being conquered. It might actually ask for the conquerors to just better include you. It just depends on the politics that the people have at the time. But people are trying to work towards something that they may not even be able to put the words to. And I think art, speaking about putting the words to something, art can come in and give you something to fill in your, your rage. It gives you some kind of context, right? Like, even if it's weak, it can give, it can say, in, in actual words or in pictures or, or something of that nature, it can put a name to your suffering and and it can it can grab you in a, in such a way that you don't even 
notice that you're being redirected. And I think, I don't think that's lost to the, to the eyes of white capital. And I just also think, even if someone doesn't want to think it's that conspiratorial, which I'm not even suggesting, it's just, it's just a common sense thing. Why wouldn't you not fund the thing that doesn't burn your buildings down? <laughs> like, why would you not say, hey, instead of burning our building down, do you want to put a painting on here about how hard it is to be black? Hey, instead of like protesting or sitting in this building, would you like to perform here? Like, it just makes sense. Like, it's not even really that that meta of a thought, honestly. It's just like, hey, why, why not do this? We can incorporate them here. They just don't feel included. Let's do diversity. And when those contradictions are, are, aren't dealt with within the people themselves, then it's just easy. And even if some of us don't go along with it, it does. they don't have to buy all of us off. They don't have to, as I say in the essay, bribe everyone. They just need to, they just need to bite off a significant chunk. And obviously the people who are going to benefit from that, as I also alluded to, or state explicitly is the black elite, because they're in the positions to receive those grants. They're in the positions to get those deals. They're in the positions, they're already known within those networks in which the bribery takes place. So they're going to get those things and then that, and then their images can be dispersed around the city and we can all feel like we're moving forward. And that's part of the laundering because the rage of the masses gets layered with the rage of the elite, which is not the same thing. And next thing you know, the rage goes from, you know, what I call labor to just simply a commodity, which labor is commodified under capital anyway. That's what we call labor power, right? So I think I think the reason they do that is because right now, particularly in this context, maybe not so much in other eras of capital, but in this context, so much so much money has been put into propaganda, has been put into you know representation, and I think it's just easy. It's like, hey, here's an outlet for what you're feeling. You know, like Fanon says, the the settler denies the native an outlet. You know, of their anger. So here's an outlet. You know, here's something you can you can express it through. I don't think it's only that, but I think that's one of the the primary ways is because it gives something it gives people something that they think is tangible, even if they've found themselves on a completely different playing field. Absolutely. And I think there's also something to be said about the way within the kind of arts field, within the arts kind of realm, a lot of what is that very active rage, that very transformative rage can be transformed into a passive rage. So people mm-hmm. are experiencing art and thinking that's enough, but not then mm-hmm. mobilizing in the way that art should really kind of provoke them to. Right. Yeah, it becomes uh, something that I actually had another phase that I didn't write because I was trying to keep it at a certain word count. But but after the commodity phase, it becomes a consumption. It becomes something that can be consumed. So rage goes from Rage goes from something that you are actively working against or working with as to say the labor becomes broken down into a commodity that can be then be consumed. So now my rage comes from the TV show, the movie, the side of struggle is actually transformed into something else. So even if we're arguing about this movie isn't historically accurate or you know, Jay-Z didn't do this or Jay-Z's got people at halftime. It doesn't matter what side you're on. Now that's the side of struggle. Now that's the discussion, not just on Twitter, but everywhere. That's in the barbershops, that's on the streets. That's what we're doing. We're not doing anything actively. In a way, the state has a way of moving people towards the direction of just not doing shit. That's the ultimate goal. Just kind of sit here and participate in it passively, to your point. No, absolutely. And I wanted to kind of like hone in on the point about the kind of contradictions within what we sometimes call the black community, right? Or what Mm -hmm. we call blackness as a sort of like larger kind of movement. 
there's always been class contradictions within that sort of like statement about blackness and within that sort of false community of blackness. How do you think that in this current moment, the celebrity class of black folk have been so instrumental and so, you know, have been have done so well in really capturing that black rage, taking it as a commodity in and of itself, right? Because they are not in struggle, right? They're not in the sort of belly of the beast the way other black folk are and are producing these cultural artifacts, producing this kind of music that then transforms that rage into a commodity that is meant to be kind of indulged by by the kind of black working classes. So I just make sure I understand the question. How have they used that black rage to yeah. their benefit, essentially? Yeah, exactly. Okay. I mean, that's <laughs> we need more time. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, man, that's a that's a that's a nice question. Let's just let's just start with a few examples. I think that hmm, I'm just trying to think where to start here, man. I think what's interesting, even to take a step back from that and still still answer it, there's what I was trying to understand when writing writing this is that. It seems to be a process that's happening almost in the background, or even if it's in, in our face, but we don't see it, that even when people have the best of intentions, this occurs. Even when the best of intentions are, even when people come from the hood, get some money and want to give back, the laundering still happens, right? And that's at the best. That's when people mean, well, that's, that's, a, that, that's rare, but that's when you even get the best. So I think that, I think when we think about like, the overall political economy and owning the means of production and what that truly means. Like I say in the essay, it's not just that they, that's capital, white capital owns the like material means of production. Like Marx talks about the mental means of production. And I talk about the ways in which they own the things that are rage and they own the means of production and the domains that our rage is able to self-actualize. So when you want to exercise your rage, you have to go through them, right? Unless you're going to burn it down or something, you have to go through them. So you have to try to go to this corporation and say, can we get something for these black kids? Can we go to the mayor? Can we get a summer program? Like you're often in a grievance politic mode. And I think that the black elite are raised from very early on, even if they're from the hood, because usually they're the good kids in the hood. that gets put in the track, the fast track programs or whatever. I grew up around people like that. They're raised with that kind of politic from almost almost from the moment they're of, they're of age to go to school. Like they're taught growing up, like, I, you know, you're going to make it and then you got to bring these people along. So they're already taught that we have to integrate people into this kind of upper class that I'm going to make it to eventually anyway. They're not taught to break that actual relationship and just end that class dynamic completely. They're taught from the beginning to, even when they're angry, even when they know there's injustice, that we have to figure out a way to bring our people along so we can live within this already existing society. They're not taught to truly dismantle or challenge that society beyond just asking it to improve the way it treats the people that it's conquered, which doesn't make any sense, right? So so when it comes to like the arts and anything else, or when it comes to just the celebrity culture, it be, it goes beyond just even that ethic where at least maybe a prior class was like, I'm gonna bring some people along I feel like that is more and more ending. And now it just becomes a brand. <laughs> now that's just the way you promote yourself. Now you don't, you don't actually even mean maybe in a, in a ways of like a civil rights generation that was never trying to, most of them, some of them were, but most of them was never trying to necessarily dismantle the entire society, at least not the, the kind of upper class of that, of that group. But they were at least, I think, had a certain politic, like we'll bring some people along. 
I don't think these people today, like as I allude to at the very end of the essay, I don't even think that's really their politic. I think they're so far gone that now they just want to promote, hey, I brought this black kid along or, or just simply I'm an example. I don't even have to actually materially give you even a crumb. I'm an example of what you could do if you just follow me. So here's a class on how to learn how to become me. You can pay me to start an LLC or you can, you know, that whole Jay-Z $500,000 conversation. Like it's very much this thing where I just stand in as a role model and, and I just set the aspirations for the masses. I don't even have to throw anything back. My aspiration is, or the aspiration of being me is the charity. Like Jay-Z once said, my presence is a charity. I think a lot of people looked at that statement as being crass or, or, you know, over the top, but I think that's really kind of the politic of a lot of these folks. Like my presence is a charity. I made it. That is the actual radical thing is just me being here. (laughs) Like just, just me existing, just me selling whatever I'm selling just my existence is the radical thing. And you can see that demonstrated. It's not just, that's not what I'm just saying. You can see how they they brand themselves in that way. They, they prop themselves up about how they fought through all these hard things. And that might've really happened. They Then they relate that back to the struggle of the masses and how they beat the odds and look at me. Like that's how they sell it back. That's how white capital backs them to sell it back. And so the aspirational politics, <laughs> More than a Martin Luther King or someone of that generation, we didn't look at them in that way. We might have looked at them as we want to do some good things. We didn't look at them simply as like, oh, I just want to be like him and that's it. You know, that's not how we even understood it. So this generation has advanced, I think, beyond even the prior black bourgeoisies that has some problems. Like Bell Hooks, I think she said, you know, the... She was talking about black people in America, but I think you could apply this across the diaspora. Like black folks have always had class conflict, but class warfare is different. (laughs) And I think we're at a point where we should just take it there. Like it's no longer just a conflict. Absolutely. I think that's a really good point. And especially in what you say about the kind of transformation of how we understand black politics, right? There was a time where struggle was rooted in the struggle of the masses, but what celebrities have been able to do, and I'd argue academics too, right, is Mm. take away struggle and blackness within the context of a mass movement of black folk and actually individualize it. And as Mm. you say, turn it into a brand, turn it into an aspirational politics, which is exactly what capitalism wants, right? So identity has a material base. Race has a significant material base. Blackness for a long time had a significant significant material politics around it. There was a time where blackness meant absolute abjection. There was a time when blackness meant proletarianization in a particular way and hyper-exploitation. Mm-hmm. But what they've been able to do through how you're saying it is really remove that politics and instead make it about a kind of bootstrapsy politics. So if you work hard enough, you can be like me. And that should be what your black rage is about. And we, we see that in lots of ways. And I think you mentioned the kind of by black logics as well, and how that also enables that particular politics to be mobilized. Yeah, well, it's like one, your rage should, they're almost trying to educate it, like your rage should be that you're not me, which is like ridic- ridiculous when you think about it just explicitly that way. But Instead of being angry that black people as a group get this are, are treated this way and, and face these particular outcomes, right, to your point about individualizing it, you should be mad that your your rage should be directed at the fact that you're not allowed to 
access the things that white people access or that the black elite access. And more and more, it's been bred that way, where even when they do diversity or anti-racist trainings or whatever, we cannot access the things that white folks access. So when you come to buy black or black wealth, that's how it gets framed, right? They talk about this racial wealth gap, which I really think at this point, we should just stop using that phrase and just call it capitalism because it doesn't explain anything. And it's not a gap. It's a gaping hole. It's whatever, you know, like it doesn't, it doesn't explain how wealth gets created. It doesn't explain capital. It just says they have more than me and we should be let into the game. It doesn't explain how the game works you know, for the most part, some of those people, I think, do a decent job when they talk about reparations of breaking that down. But overall, it doesn't explain anything. So when you come to like the buy black stuff or the black wealth, it's how do we get on par so we can quote unquote own things. Like I just saw today, Mike Epps is doing a show, a literal show called Buy Back the Block. You know, that's (laughs) that's one of the things that that this population of people likes to talk about. They're going to buy back the block again. Mike Epps, who actually is from Indianapolis, ironically, might mean well. The show might even take place in Indianapolis. I don't know. And a a few people might get a home that weren't going to get one otherwise. It's very much possible. Fair enough. But it's always about how do we get on par with what they're doing, they as in white people, as if white people are all doing well themselves. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. So it just, it, it doesn't really explain anything. And it, and it, it I, again, it displaces the side of struggle. Like ultimately, West what laundering does, it displaces the side of struggle, or as I say, it you know it throws it off its scent. So my rage, I don't know. I I'm giving things almost preliminary. I'm, I'm giving like these the fronts in their in the way stand as these things for me to gear my rage towards. Like they already give you the front. Like okay, you're angry. We've already we've already calculated that. So you're angry. So here's what you should do with your anger. And here are the examples. Here are the things you should do. We buy black, get your money up, whatever, do a business, even though most of you will always be workers at best. Most of you will never own a business. Most people in this society are workers, no, regardless of race. Most people in the world are workers of some form. They're not business owners. So why that should be an aspiration, even within a capitalist context, doesn't even make sense to me. Like, even if I was just a reformist, I would say you should still probably talk about labor. <laughs> but like, it's just a weird, this is a weird thing where it becomes very few people own businesses, period. Very few businesses within the people who own them are successful. So why put black people towards something that ultimately most folks are not successful at, even when they have capital, even when they have wealth? Most people don't succeed in that doggy dog world, but you want to put black folks in that? Like it's when you just sit back and look at it, it doesn't make any sense at all. Absolutely. And there's something really interesting, I think, about the way you kind of go about your analysis in this paper, specifically how you really tie the concepts of laundering to its economic base, right? To how Mm. all capital is laundered, right? Because, and I say this to a lot of people, like, you know, if we had to see the blood, (laughs) that the money that we interact with on a day-to-day basis, that the banal decisions of our lives are kind of soaked with, we would we would be in absolute terror. So laundering is a, right. a natural process for capital. It's an, a, mm-hmm. it's a necessary process for capital. But what's really interesting, and I think you capture this really well, and I want you to elaborate on this a little bit further too, is how laundering also exists in the superstructure, right? Laundering mm. also exists as a form of ideology building, 
around transforming our ability to truly analyze capital as it is and see capital as something else yeah yeah that's a i think you put that better than i did but <laughs> but uh but yeah i think kind of what gave me the thought of trying to like interweave that into the essay was i'm sure y'all have heard it this constant back and forth between our workers like duped or is it just the material world that forces people to do things that don't work in their interests? Mm. And I think that the, the the binary between the two, it doesn't make sense. I think when you actually look into the world, it's both. Like yeah. Some people stop at stoplights because they really believe that stoplights make sense. Some people stop at stoplights because they don't want to go. They don't want to get a fine or they don't want to get a ticket. Everybody stops at the stoplight. So it doesn't yeah. really matter what why one reason or another, as long as you can find a way to bring people to heal at the end of the day, that's ultimately what the state wants to do. So, and to do that, it can't do it strictly through coercion and repressive methods, and it can't strictly do it through ideology either. It has to have both carrot and stick. Like this is old as how this has always worked. But on the ideological front, I thought it was just a bit more interesting because it's easy to see why people don't want to do something because of the penalty tied to it or even the death that could be tied to it. Like it's easy to understand why people don't want to do things that, that have really major like material consequences. But to get people to believe in something, which is something that um, Stuart Hall really talks about in the, in yeah. the in the committee of people who wrote Police in the Crisis, to actually build consent for the state to build consent amongst, amongst the population to where the interests of capital are seen as your interests. Like that's a major project of the state. Like that's yeah. an important project of the state. So when we come back to black rage is to teach you that even if you don't feel included in this, even if you feel left out, even if you are, are just raging with anger, you, the way to resolve your, your rage is to be included within the interests of capital. Like that's how you, that's how we get trained. It's not to end capital it's not to end this relationship that we've been in since we've been conquered. It's to somehow, somehow find a way to work within it, you know, like more and more that's, that's what people get taught. I don't think the, as I say, at its base, if left untouched, black rage is the response to conquest. Like it's like they, it is a dialectic, like it, and yeah. black rage resolves it, but all of the superstructure in between it, throws it in these other directions where where black rage can become all these different things. So when an uprising occurs and someone does get killed by the police, somebody does get hit, something does kind of bring the masses of people out, all those contradictions that you've been taught, all that counterinsurgency that isn't always the police or anything, it's just school, it's just television, it's just media, all those ideas all those contradictions still exist inside people. So when th- when people come out and say, oh, we got co-opted, I'm like, yeah, but like, we, you can only co-opt people if there's a part of us that wants to go along with that. Like, you can't, if, if they just sit, put a gun to our head and said, you got to go with this, that's not co-optation. That's just flat out repression. We wouldn't call it co-optation because there's mm-hmm. nothing ideological there. That's just simply we either do or die. And we're just like, we want to stay alive, so we'll do what you want to do. But to say, but to come out with diversity statements and all of this stuff that we saw in 2020, and there's a decent chunk of us that entertain this stuff. Like I was talking about even locally, 
And that's something deeper than just like there's a gun to your head. You actually consented to that. Yeah. You actually in some way agreed with that. Right. So it's like even your rage is compromised. And as I say, you don't we don't own it. It becomes its own, it becomes something that belongs to the state. So when you exercise it, because the only way for you to exercise it is to go through them. And like I say, if you don't ultimately end that relationship, it's kind of like when you come back to the labor analogy, it's like a strike. But then after the strike, if the strike was successful or not, you go back to work because it's the only way you can get your subsistence anyway. Like you got to go back to work. So a lot of us just went back to work and we went back in some cases back to worse conditions than, than prior to the uprising. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I'm really just like thankful for your ability to, again, articulate the way ideology has shaped a lot of the disillusionment for a politics of blackness that recognizes blackness in its materiality. I wanted to ask, how do we, I suppose, overcome that ideological obfuscation, right? Because it is such a massive superstructure, because it is embedded not just in our day-to-day interactions, but as part of our socialization, right? It's a part of the American school system. It's a part of how, mm-hmm. you know, black people are miseducated. And when we think about education, especially for poor black folk as something that is underfunded, something that lacks the types of resources that are needed, how do we overcome this ideological kind of behemoth that we have to kind of that we that we're faced with i mean i don't i don't fully know the answer to that or i may <laughs> not know at all but i think something i alluded to at the very end at the last paragraph was reverse laundering yeah and reverse laundering within the within the typical field of laundering until you know people can read it and see kind of how i try to flip it on his head but it, within the typical field of laundering reverse laundering is when you take the quote unquote legitimate money and you fund something that's illegitimate or illegal. Like that's, that's how that works. So some of that I can say on a podcast, some of that I can't, some of that I can't say, (laughs) but, but I think there, when we look at the state and it's something my OG taught me or still teaches me, like the, the problem with the idea of a state under capitalism particularly is trying to cover all these grounds and be in everybody's business and cover cover every inch of the earth essentially and to do that as i say in the essay you have to bribe people right you can't everything can't be quite flat out repression so when in bribing folks you got to share some of those resources just to buy just to get everybody to buy in so i think there's a there's if that's the case then some money does have to go through some of our hands and not even just the money, the just the material money, but some decision-making has to go through our hands. Some ways of shaping the world has to go through our hands. They can't, there's only like the thing about capital is not that many people. So they need the majority of people to be involved. So that does present some opportunity if people are clear in their politics, like, like it doesn't, it doesn't, I think I think a lot of the black elite now think that they're going to just make a a really like radical movie which they don't even usually do that but they think if they could do that then they're going to transform the the superstructure I'm sure they wouldn't use that terminology they think they're going to like just change people's ideas through watching a movie which I think even though I'm an artist and I believe in the power of art I don't think that's how things work I think conditions matter more but some of us do have a say over those conditions like the thing about neocolonialism is it does ask us to be more involved in the fold 
So there is an opportunity, even if it's not the majority of us, to reverse launder some of that stuff to do things that actually completely up upends the, the the state in and of itself. You don't have to always do the things that they ask you to do with the money. You don't have to always make the choice they ask you to do. Now, some of this will require sacrifice, but I don't understand what people would expect if you're under this condition. Of course, you're going to have to sacrifice. It can't always just be an excuse of I got to I got to feed so and so or whatever. I get that. But a lot of these folks aren't even doing that. So I guess I'm saying like this is something I want to write about because I still haven't fully fleshed this out. But some of the things that we do have control over and I don't even just mean the like the top executives and stuff. They take our culture. They take our rage. They they're literally extracting from us. So if we were organized in that manner, then it would re, it would refer it would it would force things to kind of have to reverse launder themselves just by us being organized and demanding better, and not demanding better like we just want better representation, mm-hmm. but we just want an di- entirely different world, right? And I think that ideologically that's tough because a lot of people are just worried about their immediate interests. A lot of people are just kind of caught up in the thing. But if you re- if if we could reverse launder some of these things. Even on the, let's just, since, since I can't speak on some stuff on air, even if you took some of this money and you just funded different ideological projects. Yeah. So yeah. if they're, so they're going to do a buy black or whatever, then there should be like, if they're going to do financial literacy or whatever, there should be a political literacy class. Exactly. And I don't mean, and I don't mean voting. I'm just saying like, there should, if they're going to do, if they're going to do some, black entrepreneurial class or whatever, then you should be able to fund an alternative. And I don't even think in our cases that these white folks would even stop us because they're so clueless half the time. They don't even know what they're, they're putting money up for anyway. I think some of this just falls on us. Like some of us don't even have the imagination to, or or so worried about some kind of consequence or just so greedy. We don't want to do it. But I genuinely think in some cases you could you could start your little... You, you black socialists organizing, and they probably would even care because they probably don't even see it as a threat. Now, once it got a, became a real threat, then yeah, they'll come and quash, try to squash it. But you got to be ready for that anyway. That needs to be built into the project. Like you should be prepared for that anyway. But I think in some cases, like we could launch our own like ideological campaigns because they're doing it all the time. We could we could do that. We could reverse launder the diversity project and turn that into something else. It doesn't no, always have. It doesn't always have to be bullshit. I just think sometimes people just give up on that too easily because they don't have any politics themselves or they just simply don't want to go there because they like the they like the bribes that come with just doing the bullshit. No, absolutely. As I was sort of reading the the part on that reverse laundering, I was thinking about how so much of history has taught us the ways in which countercultures kind of existed, right? But I think mm-hmm. that in the current moment, and I think this is something that troubles me too, there's a real lack of political discipline. There's a real mm-hmm. lack of organizational spaces that are primarily focused on really building that political discipline, really building that sort of like structural move for, for gaining power. And I think what's really, really sad, and I think this is especially sad in the context of, of the USA, is how so much of what presents itself as inherently radical then gets transformed or swallowed up by the kind of parliamentary or electoral politics, right? Yep. And there's a real lack of organization around that. I remember I was listening to a podcast by, um, and I think Kwasi Bugaloon and some of the kind of anarchist Black Panthers were were there. And they were talking about, you know, how 
a lot of the political organizing that was happening on the streets was swallowed up by the Dem- Democratic Party, that was swallowed up by a lot of the formal sort of electoral politics because of a lot of the black elites and black bourgeoisie aligning themselves to the politics. So I suppose right. my question then becomes, how do we fight that that swallowing up? How do we fight that you know, de-radicalization or that front that a lot of sort of like democratic politicians present, you know, the AOCs, the squad, all that kind of stuff Mm -hmm. of of a sort of like inherent radicalness that then sells its soul to empire and sells its soul to the state. I think on one level, you have to have actual projects that people can get involved in. Like, I think sometimes we get too caught up in arguing that the question of electoralism or whatever. And I think you you don't control those spaces so you're always kind of at a disadvantage when you try to go into these like if you try to go into um, the NAACP and say that they should focus on something else well good luck with that project right like that's they're completely propped up they are a front for the democratic party so that's not going to work and if you go there that's just another front for recapture but like so sometimes we just need to find projects that are not directly tied to these infrastructures now that doesn't mean that they won't find, try to find a way to co-opt that but i think when you start your own project you can start to build in some of that discipline that we're talking about that we don't have currently but when you try to go in and try to infiltrate and all of that i don't think i i think this i think millennials have proven that this kind of obsession with infiltrating the structure and doing some kind of spook by step beside the door i think that that's a failed project i don't the people that claim they're doing that i don't think that that's often what happens i think you just get swallowed up by it and you've seen this push to try to like take go take those things over now if you go to an organization locally that is might might be getting funded by a democratic party but it's just really weak it doesn't have much going on i would suggest trying to take that over because (laughs) because there's nothing really the elders are just tired ain't nobody doing shit sure but if it's a well-running thing leave them alone like and just start your and, and just deal with your own project and there's plenty of stuff to get into you know like there's all kinds of things in in our communities that that the the parties and the fronts don't focus on anyway like they're they're not like even here in indianapolis like we're working on political prisoners here in the in the state that's not something that the democratic party is interested in like they're not gonna they're not trying to get political prisoners free so we might work with some of those people in those circles to to work on the legal side but generally speaking that's not something that you find even historically that most political most democratic people are even interested in and i'm just using that as an example as far as like if you have your own project it gives the people a model of something else if you're just constantly arguing with the people who are doing the laundering that's only so effective because people are especially black folks that I know, like, we just like examples. We like to see what you're doing. So you might have the greatest argument ever, but it's kind of utopian to think that you're going to argue people out of the Democratic Party. But if we see you're doing something else, then we might join that if we just see that you like taking care of people or whatever. We might join that. It's just while people are joining, we that's what we have to build that discipline. That's what we have to really ingrain it into people and help them understand and and vice versa, like, you know, them helping us understand sometimes the leaders are the ones who try to be the most moderate people. Like we have to help them help each other understand that this, that we don't, we're not going that direction. We might engage politics a little bit. I'm not taking it off the table, but that's not the ultimate goal of what we're doing here. 
But I just think you have to be willing to build those projects. And I think coming back to reverse laundering, that's partially where you could do that. If 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 we do if we could flip the person that has a diversity budget somewhere to throw money at that project or to throw support or something, that's part of that reverse laundering. That's part of doing that thing that's technically illegitimate, right? That's some that's not recognized by the state. That's part of how you do that. But you can't do that if you're always in a argument every time elections come around about whether we should vote at that point it's over anyway <laughs> so, so it's just like like if you're already having this argument like we're about to be in october like and probably by the time this drops it'll be in october and in, in the united states elections are in november people are going to be having that argument again i'm just like what are, these these niggas is going to do what they're going to do like excuse my french but they are already going to go down that road so Let's just build our own thing to give the people a different example. And I just I just think that's sometimes harder for folks than arguing with the with the folks who are doing the, the, the kind of like status quo or just disengaging completely. I think what's so interesting about what you've just described and how you responded to that answer ties me back to exactly the types of critiques that you're having on how black rage becomes commodified. And, and I think the interesting thing about capitalism as a sort of like global order is it's managed to find that perfect way to interact the ideological with the economic, right? Mm-hmm, to create mm-hmm, particular yeah. material conditions and then justify them through ideology. But what seems to be the problem in a lot of the political spaces that we see is that we've not managed to do the same thing. So we're arguing, but we're not giving the examples, right? We're not tying the ideological attempts to shift people or change people's minds to actual practical things, to actual material things. And I think that's that's such a good summation of the current problem that we're having. And and it seems so obvious when you sort of like think about it and criticise it. But so many people are lost in that need to win someone ideologically, but without ever trying to transform their lives or trying to transform people's lives, like this upsurge of mutual aid, without any political education, without any ideology building, to really kind of, you know, echo in why we're making these changes, and how right. these changes can be a part, of, a part of our lives. Right. And it's like, what's funny, to your point, kind of brings it full circle, you you approach it that way, as far as like arguing, and then you wonder why things get keep getting co-opted. Like, at some <laughs> point, you got like some like somebody said to me once like so, co-optation is a self-critique. There's you can't co-opt something if there's not some level of consent. So it's not to say that take the state off the hook. I'm just saying like if you don't have the built-in mechanisms, and yes, people are gonna go for the bullshit. And you can't you can't on one side, especially if you're claiming to be some kind of Marxist or leftist on one side, claim it's about material conditions, and then every time people get co-opted, you have this very idealistic like almost victim blaming like all oh, these they just don't know any better or we just it's like well on some level you got to build that in to you know or, or it's gonna keep happening this isn't like some kind of magical process you know so it's like there isn't any purity under this shit like there's constant contradictions so yeah if you don't have a project it doesn't mean that that's a a, a fail safe either but it at least gives people an example then it would be easier to say man people are choosing that over this Maybe this is what they want. Fair enough. But we're going to keep doing this because this is what we actually think matters. But if you're just arguing with folks or you're just doing the same thing everybody else is doing, you know, like it's just at some point, I don't know what else we should expect other than the same kind of process. And it would just keep getting worse because the superstructure 
and the base are kind of like growing, um, growing to become the same one and the same at this point anyway. So it's Absolutely. just like, so it's just like, it just, this is going to keep getting worse. Like a quick example, even here in the United States in 2014, when Ferguson happened and that, and that whole uprising and, and the, the state really didn't have anything for that. Like, you know, cause they were, they, at that point, it was just civil rights leaders. It was Obama and none of the people in Ferguson wanted to hear it from any of these people. You know, some of them actually got kicked out. They had nothing for it. So for a while, you know, the media tried to ignore it and it just kept upsurging and it did. And some things were able to break through. You didn't see the immediate, like we were still arguing over whether Black Lives Matter was a fair thing to even say back then. So you didn't see this immediate like rush to everybody saying that Black Lives Matter and all this money flooded in. It didn't really happen like that initially. By 2020, they completely learned from that. Everybody yeah. says Black Lives Matter. There was no pushback against that other than the the Republicans who were going to raise money on being the opposition to it. But the entire liberal establishment was completely fine with that. They they cuz cuz at that point all these people had nonprofits and stuff. All these people had books that came out. A lot it was already kind of set up. So it was just easy to move it from one thing to another. It was much harder to launder the rage in 2014 than it was in yeah. 2020. So the next time there's a major kind of upsurge or whatever, whether people want to call that uprisings, protests, it depends on how you define those things. But the next time there's some kind of upsurge, think about how bad it's going to be then. <laughs> like, like it's it's because unless we build something else, unless we actually do build these alternatives, consider how bad that might be then. Like, it's almost a scary thought. Absolutely. I think this is a really good place to end. What do you think, Mamadou? Honestly... See, only because of timing, but I'm enjoying this conversation so much. Like, I'm like, okay, I've got my notepad out. I'm like, okay, this, this, this is how I interview two black. <laughs> but you know what? It's always going to be an ongoing conversation. So I think we could we can have another conversation as well. I'm Absolutely. always down for it. And I'm sure two black um, is going to write more things that we, we want to kind of grapple with and, and experience and learn from. So the conversation is never going to end. Yeah, yeah. As, long as, as long as they let me stay alive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we got you now. We got you, man. Please, again, once again, I'm going to post Deej and Two Black Socials. I'm going to send out the article with the link as well to the episode. Please like, comment, subscribe. This is Mamadou Deej and Deej <laughs> on the Markham Effect. Please like, comment, subscribe. And until next time, peace out, people. <laughs>